to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. Well, good morning. Daniel chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me. Daniel chapter 3. This great God has revealed Himself to us through His Word and that's what I hope to see. It's been a, a pleasure these couple of weeks to uh, preach and to prepare the Word in a different way. Uh, the preparation for me, whether I'm leading worship in song and music or uh, preaching, is, is largely the same. Uh, one, I just get to talk more, and the other one, I'm singing more. So the ministry of the Word is the ministry of the Word, whether we're singing or praying or preaching or uh, encouraging one another, exhorting one another. I hope that we uh, are and will continue to be a church, a gathering of people where we speak God's Word to one another. And not only that, but it's actually an encouragement that when we hear God's truth, that it actually changes our hearts. It changes our minds. It points us in the right direction, even as uh, Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out. He created a word. That word doesn't exist anywhere else in the Greek language, theopneustos. He created a word to talk about how God is the source of this truth. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching. So I hope to be taught today. I've been taught through the text this week for reproof. God says sometimes, hey man, that's going the wrong direction. That's a loving, gracious thing for God to tell us when we're going the wrong way. For uh, uh, teaching, reproof, uh, correction. Correction is, hey, this is the right way. You were going the wrong way, come back this way. And training in righteousness. So there, there, there's maturity, there's growth. As, as we follow Christ, That we, we should be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. So uh, I hope that's why you're here today. I hope that's uh, what your heart's desire is. If we look at Daniel chapter 3, just to give us a, a bit of a, a summary. The book of Daniel is a display of God. I know the book's titled Daniel, but maybe it should be called God Using Daniel or God from Daniel's Life or this is a book about God and in particular his absolute sovereignty. It's hard to walk away from reading the book of Daniel and going, man, this God, whether it's true or not, the portrayal of this God is that he is sovereign over everything. God is ruling and reigning over everything, kings, kingdoms, nations, peoples, languages, especially his people Israel, as he has a covenant relationship with them. And today we're going to see even his sovereignty over fire and its effects. How often do you think about your God being sovereign over literal creation of fire? Israel is in captivity to Babylon because of their persistent spiritual adultery and lack of repentance toward Yahweh, their covenant God. So in love, 
Yahweh is disciplining them and bringing them back to repentance and renewed faith because of his steadfast covenant love. God didn't have to do this. God didn't have to bring them back. He could have said, fine, you don't want me. I don't want you. I'm done. He could have started over with another nation. But his steadfast covenant love commits himself to his people and says, I'm going to bring you back. We see God work in Daniel chapter 1 as Daniel refuses to defile himself with the king's food in order to show his devotion to Yahweh. Yes, Daniel is faithful, but the faith that he has is a gift of God's grace. Where else would it come from? We saw in chapter 2 that God is sovereign over dreams, and he gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream that was troubling, frightening. His astrologers, enchanters, magicians, they couldn't help him, and so in fury, he just plans to kill them all. That'll probably fix it. Kill everybody, including Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel wisely asks for some time, and puts his trust in the God of heaven to help them. So they have a prayer meeting. The God of heaven hears their cries for help and gives Daniel both the dream and the interpretation. And because of that, King Nebuchadnezzar honors Daniel and his God, calling him the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. He promotes Daniel to be ruler of the entire province of Babylon, the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, the dream was of a statue with King Nebuchadnezzar as the golden head and other inferior kingdoms underneath him to come after him. But there was also a rock that was not made with human hands that would strike the statue on its feet and it would completely obliterate it such that the wind would blow away even the dust that remained and there would be no trace of this statue left. So this rock then would grow into a great mountain that would fill the entire earth. This is the God of Daniel. This is the God of heaven sovereignly setting up a kingdom that Psalm 145 speaks of. It will never be destroyed. It's an everlasting kingdom. That's the tension we see all throughout Daniel. And in chapter 3 in particular, this is called a court narrative. Somebody's on trial. Is it King Nebuchadnezzar? Is it the Chaldeans? Is it Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I would suggest to you that even in Daniel 3, God is still a little bit uh, on the hot seat. God is, is being uh, judged in a sense. What's he going to do? What is this God uh, going to do in this situation? He's already proven himself faithful in chapter 1. He's proven himself in, in chapter 2. And so in this court scene, God is still on trial. Now, it's hard for us to think about God being on trial, but when we see the narrative, we, we have to ask the question, where is God? Who is this God? What's he going to do? The king's uh, creation, we saw last week, King Nebuchadnezzar takes it on himself to bring at least part of this dream to life and to exalt himself in the creation of an image or a statue, whether it looked like him or whether it was just a representative obelisk or some shape. 
The king's creation led to the king's call for all the officials to come to the dedication of the image. Now remember, this is the same word that God uses in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our salam, our image. Some kind of likeness or resemblance. This word is translated into the Greek as icon or icon and was used to describe, for example, Caesar's image on a coin. It looks like Caesar, yes. It's not Caesar, but it's his image. King Nebuchadnezzar creates the image. He calls the officials to come to the dedication. He commands that when they hear the music, they're to fall down and worship the image that he set up. We saw just like the devil did with Jesus in the wilderness. I'll give you all of these kingdoms and their glory. All you got to do is bow down to me and worship me. It's a good trade, right? The king's consequences for not obeying are immediately to be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So, apparently because the people love their lives more than their devotion to any one particular god, remember this is a polytheistic society and there's lots of gods around, but the king's consequences apparently didn't pertain to bowing down to any other god. It was this image. There's a supremacy going on here. And if you don't bow down to this one, fiery furnace. So, as Jesus says, in seeking to save their lives, they are, in fact, losing them. But to King Nebuchadnezzar, this was all good. This was the way it should be. Enter the Chaldeans' malicious accusation of the Jews. This was the same group of magicians that was unable to tell the king his dream and were very likely jealous of Daniel and his friends because they were promoted to higher positions. So what do you do when you're jealous of people? You go after them. You try to create some kind of conflict in the hopes that maybe you would replace them at some point. So they tell King Nebuchadnezzar maliciously, the text says, accusing the Jews of not worshiping the image that he set up. They're playing into Nebuchadnezzar's pride. They say, they're not serving or worshiping your gods. These are the leaders that you set up, remember? They pay no attention to you. So they're feeding into King Nebuchadnezzar's pride here and saying, well, what are you going to do about that? You see how King Nebuchadnezzar's kind of on trial at that point? These court proceedings, these questions, these situations, people are being put on trial. King Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He commands Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought before them. He asks if this is indeed true. He gives them another chance to obey. And here's where we pick up the story. This is 3 verses 15 through 18. This is what I'm calling the king's coercion. He doesn't have to give them another chance, but maybe in order to save face, he's like, come on, guys, fiery furnace. Do you really want to do this? This is verse 15. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made... Well and good. Do you see how he's trying to define norm? Here's what is well, here's what is good from his perspective. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God 
who will deliver you out of my hands. That's the court proceedings. God's on trial. Which God is going to deliver you from me? Do you, do you hear the pride welling up? Do you hear the authority? Do you hear the power? Don't you know who I am? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to give you one more shot. If you do, well and good. You're in order. Things are all right. What God's going to deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, I hope we get this on video in heaven or just something. I want to hear tone of voice. I want to see de- facial expressions. I want to see demeanor. Like, were they, were they shouting at him? Or My sense is that because of the fruit of the Spirit of self-control, they were pretty matter-of-fact. They weren't disrespectful. I don't know for a fact, but, but their words just are very matter-of-fact. No unnecessary drama here. No extra... O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. To deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is what I call grace-fueled reliance. Who are they relying on? What are they relying on? Is this coming from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They had to work this up within themselves apart from God's grace? No, this is God's grace. This is what it looks like when people stand firm in their faith. Grace-fueled reliance and grace-fueled defiance. It's not just defiance of any authority for any reason. This is a defiance that is going specifically against God's word. And therefore, what other choice do they have in order to be faithful to God? God says, don't bow down to these images. Don't create them. I'm your God. I rescued you from Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Either or. And God gives them grace to do differently than they did giving them a reason to be put into Babylonian captivity. Remember, they're they're in Babylon because of their unfaithfulness to God. And now we see this repentance and this return by God's grace in this situation. They say, we won't do it. In order to be faithful to their God, God must uphold their faith. And He does. So many implications for how we try to live our life uh, for Christ, right? Do we work it up in ourselves? Do we look to ourselves? Are we self-reliant? Or do we look to God to, to give us the grace to do what He's commanded us to do? This is the message to the Galatians. Galatians, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in your flesh? Did God just get the ball rolling and now you got to push it all the way to heaven? No, that's not the gospel. So they say, even at the cost of our lives, God is worthy to be worshipped. I'm not going to bow down. God is upholding their faith, their reliance on their God who is able to deliver and will deliver them in some way or another. Their defiance is also an act of grace because if they just bow down like everyone else, where is the true witness to the one true God? Even at the cost of their lives, is the worth of God really worth it? And they say yes. So God will not leave himself without a witness. 
to his greatness and his worth, he will preserve his people even if their deliverance is by means of and not rescue from death. We're going to see that tension today. He will preserve his people even if their deliverance is by means of and not rescue from death. So the king tries to coerce them into idolatry, but they won't budge in their loyalty to Yahweh, their God, not if it means death. 3 verses 19 and 20, this is what I call the king's condemnation. There's going to be consequences to this, and the king is going to condemn them for their response. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression here is the same Salem image word. The expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning furnace. Verse 21. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. It's hard for us to really understand what's going on here experientially. This is a one-time deal. You you don't get thrown into a fiery furnace and live to tell the tale. But if you've been in some kind of experience where it was life-threatening, if it was extraordinary, put yourself in that kind of position to understand what's going on here. Try to make some uh, the, some association of, of weight, of significance. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a legend. This is real flesh and bone and blood. Try to put yourself in this situation. They're thrown into the fire. Now, if the story ended here, from a biblical standpoint, it would not be an ultimate tragedy. Right? God is not unfaithful at this point. If we knew nothing else of this story, it would not be a failure but a victory of God's grace where death was chosen instead of idolatry. So do you see they're being cast into the fire as, man, God blew it. Where was God? Remember, God's on trial. Where was God? He, they got thrown in. If the story ends here, God is not being unfaithful to his people. God could have delivered these saints through the fire and bring them home to eternal life and joy. I want to tell you about another man. His name is Polycarp. Polycarp uh, was a disciple of John, 
and uh, this John that wrote the Gospel of John and the Revelation. Polycarp was a pastor in Smyrna, which is modern-day Turkey, in the second century, and he was burned at the stake in about year 155 to 156 A.D. It's a very similar story to the one we read about in Daniel. Persecution broke out in Smyrna, and they began rounding up the Christians and demanding that they renounce Christ and bow down to the Roman emperor as a pledge of their loyalty and allegiance. So this is not really a new story throughout history. But when they would not bow down, they were tortured and then eventually killed. What's ironic about this situation is that those who would not acknowledge and pledge their loyalty to the Roman pantheon of gods were called atheists. Because you're not going to worship our gods, you guys don't believe in God. Atheist. After these atheists were tortured and killed, the crowd said, Away with these atheists and go find Polycarp. Go get the pastor. You see the connection between the pastor and his people? He must be responsible for these atheists. When the soldiers found him, he didn't run. He actually invited them in for a meal, and he fed them. You see the contrast? <laughs> these guys are coming to your house to arrest you, to take you away to the Colosseum. Hey, can I, you guys hungry? Uh, can I get you something to eat? Are you thirsty? You see the gospel that Jesus proclaimed being worked out in the life of Polycarp. So he invited them in, a meal, uh, in for a meal. He fed them. He asked for an hour to pray. Can I, can I just have some time to pray? They agreed, and it was said that after he had finished praying, the soldiers regretted their part in his arrest. They heard him praying, and they said, man, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing this. He was taken to the carriage. The captain of the local troops, who was named Herod, ironically, urged him to save himself. You see the coercion? Here's his words. Why, he says, why? What harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering a bit of incense? You're willing to die just because you won't utter some words and have a little incense burned? When Polycarp denied even the thought of doing such a thing, the captain forced him out of the carriage. <laughs> you see the, the change in response. He's trying to figure out, why are you doing this? And then when he doesn't give the right answer, you just kick him on the street. So he pushed him out. When Polycarp was brought into the stadium full of spectators thirsty for blood, as killing Christians had become like a sport... In the Colosseum, they were lashed until their muscles were exposed. They were forced to lay down on broken seashells. They were mauled by wild animals as the crowd cheered and celebrated their deaths. As Polycarp entered the stadium, there was a voice from the crowd that cried out, Be strong, Polycarp. Play the man. The proconsul urged him to deny Christ and pledge loyalty to Caesar. And Polycarp turned to the crowd and said, Away with the atheists. 
when he urged him even more strongly to deny Christ and bow down before the emperor and swear his allegiance, Polycarp said this, 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You think these words are coming from Polycarp? The faith, the courage, the steadfastness. Should we give Polycarp all the credit for this? No, this is grace-fueled reliance. This is grace-fueled defiance. This is what faithfulness looks like. When pressed again to swear devotion to Caesar, do you see the temptation aspect of it? Come on, man, come on. Urging, it's just idolatry. Come on. When pressed again, Polycarp said, Since you pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn more about Christianity, I'll be happy to make an appointment. The proconsul said, Don't you know I have wild beasts waiting? I'll throw you to them unless you repent. You see how he's offering repentance? Repentance is not a particularly Christian word. You just turn. So there's one repentance that Polycarp is offering to the proconsul, and the proconsul has a kind of repentance as well that he's offering to Polycarp. Polycarp answered, bring them on. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. How can we do such a thing? So the proconsul threatened to burn him alive. And in response to this, Polycarp says, You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season. And after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. What are you waiting for? Do what you wish. You see the grace at work in Polycarp's life? His perpetual denial of, adult, uh, of idolatry and his perpetual faithfulness upheld by God's grace to be faithful to his worthy God. Polycarp was eventually tied to a wooden stake, and normally they would nail them to the, the wood, but he told them, leave me as I am. For the one who gives me strength to endure the fire will also give me strength to remain at the stake unmoved without being secured by nails. He says, I'm not running. I have a strength that you're apparently not aware of. And he's given me strength now, and he'll give me strength to stay here. You hear the, the reliance talk? He's not looking to himself for faithfulness. And so they bound his hands behind him as Polycarp sang a psalm of praise and thanksgiving to God. You, you hear when we're singing these psalms, who would know that maybe we would sing them in an hour of temptation, an hour of persecution, these songs that we're trying to plant in our hearts. Great are you, Lord. What's going to get him through the fire? Self-reliance? No. The greatness of his God. He was surrounded by wood. The flame was lit. Those who watched were astonished as the flame just seemed to burn around him as though there was some kind of force 
keeping the flames at bay. And so one of the old, one of the soldiers was ordered to pierce him with a spear, and he bled so much that it was putting out the fire. God is not done with Polycarp yet. But eventually Polycarp bled to death and his body was burned in the flames. He was killed for refusing to bow down to Caesar and confess that Caesar is Lord and burn incense in devotion and allegiance to the Roman emperor. But Christians being killed for their faith is not a new phenomenon. According to some counts, there have been twice as many Christians killed in the 20th century than all the previous 19 centuries combined. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, although grieved, because First Peter 5 tells us this, I exhort the elders among you as a, a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Do you see this in Polycarp? What an example he was to his people. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Do you see the reward? Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour here. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is not an isolated incident. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, you want to be an elder? That likely meant the first to suffer in the early church. Not a position of power where you can compel people to do what you want them to do. It's not a, a way to get unrighteous gain. wasn't a position of worldly prominence. It wasn't just about decision-making and, and gaining some worldly clout. It usually meant the first to suffer, the first to be an example of faithfulness to God and Christ. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Do you see the grace promised and upholding? To him be the dominion forever and ever. 
Do you hear the promise of reward? You will receive the unfading crown of glory. So what do you want? A, a temporary life or an unfading crown of glory? You have to choose. And by the grace of God, we will see the worth of God worth more than this earthly life, worth even our lives given to him in death. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves. Do you want God to resist you, or do you want him to give you grace? Humble yourself. God will exalt you at the proper time. So how do we humble ourselves? By casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for you all. You have an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Do you see that in the life of Daniel, the life of Polycarp? They are resisting that which would take them away from their God. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I've been getting regular updates from brothers and sisters in Myanmar right now, and even though it's not particularly a, a religious persecution that is going on, it's a mixture. Uh, it's a mixture of, of national suffering. But there are aspects where their faith is being tested. Are they going to be just like everybody else suffering? Or are they going to be faithful to their God as they are suffering? The suffering... Peter says, is only for a little while. It's not going to feel like a little while. I'm sure as Polycarp stood there with the flames around, it didn't, it didn't feel like just a little while. I'm sure when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace, maybe they're not thinking this is going to be quick and easy. But comparatively, when weighed against eternity... This suffering is not even worthy to be compared with the eternal glory, Paul says. So, so what do you want? Do you want freedom from suffering in this life? And then an eternity of suffering because of idolatry against the one true living God? Or do you want his favor through Christ? Because the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory, not just in any God but in Christ... He will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. And sometimes the same sovereign God in whom these martyrs put their literal dying trust chooses to let them be found, captured, interrogated, threatened, tortured, killed, all for the sake of his glorious name and their everlasting joy. This is not a failure on God's part. He didn't fail them. He upheld them. So when the world sees faith-filled children of God and true followers of Christ suffer faithfully, some of them will be enraged because they hate Jesus. They will cheer at the suffering just like they did in the Colosseum. They will celebrate the torture. They will revel in the blood of believers because it will look like they have won. But God will be at work. And others will see the faithful witness and respond in faith. And sometimes 
God even asserts his sovereignty in another miraculous way, as we see in the book of Daniel. Sometimes God says no to the king's condemnation and consequence. In the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God chooses to let them be thrown in the fire so that he could send his representative to walk around in the fire with them. Now, this part of the story, it just sounds too crazy to be true. And you have to decide, is this, is this a true story or is this just legend? I wouldn't die for a legend. If this is not true, I'm not really interested in giving up my life for some fairy tale. Chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, I call the king's confusion. King Nebuchadnezzar is really confused here. Verse 24 says this, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Do you really need to ask that question? I'm sure one, two, three. It's not, uh, I'm a musician. I usually count to four most of the time, sometimes six. But you can count to three pretty good. Didn't we throw three guys in? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. It's not a long conversation here. True. Verse 25, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. This is a weird story. All the things that you would expect, you threw in three, there should be three in there. I see four. We sent them inbound, now they're not bound. You wouldn't think people would be walking around in fire, they're walking around in fire. And there's this fourth observable personage in the fire walking around with them. And he says the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. There was something different about this fourth man in the fire. So King Nebuchadnezzar is rightly confused. What would you think if you saw this? Even his own mighty men were killed by the flames when they threw them in, just getting that close. And they were thrown in bound, and now there's four men unbound. They're walking around in the midst of the fire, not hurt. So what are we supposed to think at this point? Oh, well, in our Marvel DC universe age, we say, oh man, they're superheroes. They got some kind of superpowers, and now the flames don't hurt them. So are they superheroes? Can we explain this as coming from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Did they somehow conjure up enough faith to make them fireproof? Is this story even true? Well, remember who this story is really about. If you make it about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, it kind of doesn't make sense at this point. But it's never really about them. This entire story is about God and his sovereignty over all things. And here... He is sovereign over King Nebuchadnezzar and his condemnation of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What did the king want? 
you guys want to bow down to me and my image? Y'all are in the fire. That's what I have to say about the matter. God says, nope, not this time. I've got another plan. Here's what's going to happen, King Nebuchadnezzar. God could have told King Nebuchadnezzar that. He could have just spoke it out. He doesn't. He worked through the circumstances, through the fire. So is there any application for us, maybe in our own lives, that God may want to work through the fire? Maybe he wants to preserve us in the fire and not always rescue us from it. What if every fiery circumstance that we find ourselves in is an opportunity for God to show his preservation and grace of our faith, and we just want to be rescued out of the fire? We don't even want to get close to the fiery furnace. We, would, we don't want the fiery furnace to exist. God, you're not being faithful to me if you let that fiery furnace get anywhere close to me. No, 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 no. This God works through the fiery furnace. And yes, he's able to deliver. He could have wiped out the whole world. He could have wiped out Nebuchadnezzar. He could have stopped it at any time. And he allows them to be thrown into the burning fiery furnace so that he could display his will. So he's sovereign over King Nebuchadnezzar and his condemnation. He's sovereign over the ropes. I thought we tied him up. Ropes are no problem for the God of the universe. He's sovereign over the mighty men and their death. It's appointed unto man to die once, and after this, the judgment. Yeah, the fire's going to kill them. It's not going to kill you. You see God's sovereignty? What naturally was supposed to happen with the fire happened to these guys. Didn't happen to these guys. He's sovereign over the fiery furnace and all the flames. He's sovereign over their bodies. As they were not hurt, he's sovereign over their walking around in him. Paul says, we live and move and have our being. Who's causing them to walk around? Who's causing us to walk around? Whose breath is in our lungs? Who is sustaining our life? Do we see that? He's sovereign over their lack of being hurt. He's sovereignly accompanying them in the fire through his representative. Is this not the promise of Isaiah 43? Let's take a look at Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. But now thus says Yahweh, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. And when, not if, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When, not if, you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Well, I thought Polycarp was burned. Yes. You have to have categories for it. Yeah, the body may burn. The flame may actually be very painful. But God is delivering through the fire, not always from the fire. It will not ultimately hurt what is most valuable in eternity. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I'm the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So does God always save like this, as he does in the 
circumstance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Amanigo? No. Is he always able to? Absolutely. So why doesn't he do this all the time? Well, I don't know, except to say that when believers are willing to suffer in this life for his name, God gets a kind of glory that is not otherwise possible, like the glory of the cross. Why would God allow his own son to suffer? For no reason? Today's Palm Sunday. Next week we celebrate the resurrection. You can't rise from the dead unless you die. Jesus was killed. He suffered. So there's a kind of glory that God gets when we look at the suffering and we say, oh, yes, that's not something to be celebrated. And yet God gets a glory from that when it's faithful suffering. The miraculous deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is another type of deliverance that we see foreshadowing salvation in Christ because we don't know exactly who the fourth man was. Some people want to say definitively this was Jesus. It's the fourth man, makes a a great illustration. We don't know specifically if that's what's going on here, and we don't really need to know to see the story and to see the message. It very well could be. We see Nebuchadnezzar saying, this looks like a son of the gods. This is not just a mere human being. But the text is not clear, and so we want to leave unclear what the Scripture does not make explicit. But whoever the fourth figure is in the fire, what is clear is that it made an impression on King Nebuchadnezzar. Had the fourth figure not been there, Had he not been visible, it may have been easier to focus on the other three and credit them with some kind of magical power from their God to be protected from the flames. God didn't want the three to be honored in the same way that maybe Daniel was honored. There's a fourth person here. The fourth man appearing in the fire... With these other three is God saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're just not as in charge as you think you are. You put in three, I've got an extra. You can create an idol. You can call the officials together. You can command them to fall down and worship. You can threaten consequences. You can even condemn people to death. But you're not so sovereign that my sovereignty is rendered impotent. Who's in charge here who's on trial now the tables are turned king nebuchadnezzar and all of his pomp all of his celebration all of his authority stuff is going on outside of his control and he's forced to recognize that is is that not the grace of god when god puts a sovereign limitation on maybe what we can do or what we think we can do as we assert our personal sovereignty in our lives and want to control so many things, and God says, no, uh, that's not going to happen like you want it to happen. Do we kick against the sovereignty of God, or do we acknowledge it and recognize that, you know, maybe, maybe God doesn't want me to go there. Maybe that's not supposed to happen. Am I even inquiring that that may be possible? Or am I just hacked off and furious like King Nebuchadnezzar when things don't go my way? When my will is not accomplished. This is a divine display of God's might 
and power and promised protection in order to show his supreme sovereignty over all things, including the persecution of his people, the people that are persecuting them, the extent and effectiveness of the persecution, the faithfulness of their grace-fueled defiance, and the day and hour and the moment and the means of their death. It's not your time. I'm sovereign over that. King Nebuchadnezzar wants to kill you. I said no. No one kills and no one dies apart from the sovereignty of this God. So in verse 26, we see the king's recall. He's confused, doesn't know what's going on. He recalls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. This is way understated. (laughs) Like this is just normal. They were thrown into a fire, and now they're just walking out. You see how weird God is in the most glorious of ways, what he's able to do, and it just leaves people shaking their head astonished. This is not, what's going on here? That's, this is not normal. This is what we should be like in our communities. We should be weird in a holy way. Oh, people don't respond that way. Like what, how, who, what's going on again? Why did you say that? There's an attractiveness to being weird as a Christian because when we live the life of grace through God's power, it moves us and motivates us to do things that aren't really natural in this world. Oh, yeah, somebody cut you off on the road? Yeah, flip them off. (laughs) That's what you do. Well, not if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you pray for them. Maybe they're on the way to the hospital. Maybe their grandmother is on life support. We don't know. Is there a difference in response to how we would respond in the flesh and how we would respond in the power of the Holy Spirit? So he calls them the servants of the Most High God. He commands them to come out. Verse 27, all the leaders, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors, they gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. Look at the details. The hair of their heads was not singed. What would you expect? Have you ever uh, been camping and you put a little too much gas on the fire and you light the match? Whoa. Okay, eyebrows singed. That was a close one. Not in this case. They were thrown into a fiery furnace. Not a hair was singed. Do you see the details of God's sovereignty? Their hair was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. What happens to clothes when you throw them in fire? They typically burn. I love this last one. No smell of fire had come upon them. How often do you think of God's sovereignty being to the molecular level? I don't know really how smoke works. 
I know the effects of it. I know when I've been around a campfire and then I go in and my clothes, they smell like smoke on the molecular level. And God says, no, 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 not this time. Watch this. Down to the molecules of smoke particles. I'm not even going to let it attach to their clothes. King Nebuchadnezzar gives honor to these three men. And he calls them servants of the Most High God. And all the officials get to witness God's sovereignty over the fire, that it had no power over their bodies, that God was sovereign over the hair of their heads, such that they were not singed, that God was sovereign over their clothes, such that not even their clothes were harmed, and God was sovereign even over the smell of fire, because not even the smell of fire had come upon them. So if you were in the crowd... To which God would you want to bow down and pledge your loyalty and devotion? These details should bring us great comfort. If he's sovereign over such minute details, what would make us believe that he's not sovereign over every detail of our lives, especially as his people? Is there such a thing as an accident? Good or bad? Is there such a thing as being lucky? Or is God at work? Now, lest we fall into some kind of fatalism or determinism where God determines all things to the point that we're all rendered robots, we must acknowledge that man's accountability for his attitudes and actions are just as clear as God's sovereignty so that we're out without excuse. God's sovereignty and man's accountability, though we think they don't fit together in God's sovereignty, they do, and we are accountable. Look at verse 28. This is the king's confession. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. This is another aspect of God's grace in King Nebuchadnezzar's life. We don't know what's really, what's God doing in King Nebuchadnezzar's life. At this point, he's able to see rightly. Is that coming from King Nebuchadnezzar? No, it's coming from God's grace. Now, he's still in process because he's going to turn right around in verse 29 and give a decree. This is verse 29. Therefore, in light of that deliverance, in light of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faithful witness, in light of their God, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything that speaks, you can't even speak anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. Okay, his application is way off here. He's not changed by the grace of God yet. Let's just kill them all. For there is no other God who's able to rescue in this way. 
he's getting the sovereignty and supremacy of God, even if just a little bit at a time. He's seeing some things clearly. He's not responding rightly. But God's at work. Verse 30. The king's commendation. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And I would think that most of us, at least in our flesh, want God always to protect us from harm in the way that he did with these three. It's a very natural reaction to what's going on here. I would assume that most of us would be happy with the promotion. Yes, promotion, more power, more paycheck. Thank you, Lord. But these blessings are not the fullness of what it means to follow Christ in this world. These are the shadow of what was to come because there's another king who left his throne not to be protected from all suffering, but to embrace suffering like no one else ever would. This king was sent by his father to do his father's will and to give his life as a ransom by absorbing the fiery furnace of God's wrath for sin, sin that he never committed, sin that was not his own. And yet he sacrificed his very life so that whoever would receive him as their Savior, their Lord, their treasure, would have eternal life. And what is this? Eternal life of knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. The grim exchange of Romans 1 is that all of us in our human depravity, we default to suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we are glad to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. But the great exchange is when God the Father in His grace causes a sinner's heart to want salvation more than the pleasures of sin or the avoidance of suffering. When the Father draws a sinner to Christ and gives them eyes to see His beauty, when He gives them faith by His grace to receive Christ as their sacrifice for sin and only hope of salvation before God's justice, that is eternal life. This is what we call the good news of the gospel, and this is God's icon his representative figure. I didn't mention this last week, but this same word icon is used by Paul in Colossians to describe Jesus Christ as the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God's divine image. This is Colossians 1. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, speaking of Jesus, is the icon. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Not King Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Not our idols, whatever we want to set up. God is not committed to our objects of worship as he's committed to his own glory shown through Christ. Verse 19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How did he do this? Making peace by the blood of his cross. So do you see what God is doing here? In the book of Daniel, God the Father is sovereignly working out his plan to seat his son on the throne of his kingdom, And any king or kingdom that seeks to exalt itself against God and his Messiah king will utterly be destroyed. Those are the options. There are ultimately only two realities in this world. There's the domain of darkness and the kingdom of God's beloved son. And so this Sunday before Resurrection Sunday is called Palm Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and the the people cast their palm branches down saying, Hosanna, save us to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. But they thought that this Messiah was about conquering Rome and being a military might that would liberate Israel from their oppressors. Remove us from suffering. Yea, Jesus. We'll never suffer again because our guy's going to be on the throne. Not yet. They weren't aware of the greater suffering. Jesus was coming to save his people from their sins. That's the worst kind of suffering because it separates us from our God. Jesus was coming to save his people from their sins and bring people to God, not by being rescued from the fiery furnace of God's wrath, but through laying down his life, knowing that in three days the Father would raise him up to glory. Jesus went through the fiery furnace of the cross, trusting that God was able to even raise the dead. You see, we are all a part of one of these two kingdoms, and the consequences of being in the wrong kingdom are eternal, even as are the blessings of being a part of the kingdom of God. You can bow down to the crucified and risen King of kings and Lord of lords, and the reward is eternal life, or you can bow down to some unworthy idol, and the consequences will be eternal death. Because the the God of Scripture is not interested in being one God among a pantheon of deities. God will not compromise in this regard because He is holy. He is the one true and living God. And as such, he will not budge and he will not stop until the whole earth is filled with his glory as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14. This kingdom is coming through his son, Jesus, and it's coming by the power of his Holy Spirit, which is why it's unstoppable and glorious. So today, may God give us the grace to be faithful to Him, to bow and worship only Him, whether it's gathered worship or scattered worship in our homes, 
with our families privately. May he give us grace to be faithful to his eternal image, his Christ, his King. May we heed his call. May we herald both his eternal consequences for defying his sovereignty and his eternal rewards for relying on his grace. May we be faithful even at the cost of our lives, trusting that one day soon, as Paul says in Philippians, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And to Jesus it will be said, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Caesar, not you, not me. He is Lord in all of this to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Amen.